0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through this very early epistle in the New Testament written to the believers, the fledgling church in the city of Thessalonica in northern Greece by the pen of the Apostle Paul. And this morning we arrive at a passage in our study of 1 Thessalonians that is perhaps the clearest and most descriptive verse or verses in the Bible regarding what is known as the rapture. And I'll take a bit of time to explain what that word means here in a little bit. But I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, Expectant Hope. Expectant Hope. We all know what it means to live with expectancy, to have some level of anticipation about something as children... I don't know if anything equates to a child's heart and mind quite like the expectancy of Christmas morning. When we see those brightly decorated presents underneath the the bright lit tree, there is, for children, this anticipation and expectancy about opening those gifts on Christmas morning. Of course, uh, growing up and going to school, as we near the end of a school year, I can remember fondly, Looking forward to the last day of school and how that would be over, right? And then, of course, as we go through school, we anticipate and we looked with longing expectation to graduation. When we'll be done with school. And, of course, there's the expectancy of getting married and all that surrounds the heightened expectations of a wedding. You go through life, you have the expectancy of a new job, a new car, a new baby, and, of course, a new guitar. That was a great expectation. There's all kinds of things that we have that we look forward to with this expectancy. But we know with each and every one of them, all of them that have this promise of joy, promise of satisfaction, promise of fulfillment, after a while that promise fades away. The brightness of those things dim. The Christmas presents become uninteresting to the child very quickly. We realize after just a few days, summer break is very boring and very long. And marriage, well, it's hard work. But there is one expectation we have as believers in Jesus. There is one anticipation, one hope that will never fade and will never dim. That's our eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's never going to get boring Now, there's no doubt that when the Apostle Paul was with these fledgling Christians in the city of Thessalonica, he gave them uh, basics of the Christian faith. He was with them just a short period of time, and I'm certain he talked to them, among other things, about the promise that's contained in Christ's return, that Jesus is coming back. Why? Because this is a fundamental and foundational doctrine of the Christian church that we know from the very earliest catechisms and creeds of the church this was included one of the earliest the second century document known as the apostles creed says very succinctly he shall come to judge the quick that's the living and the dead so this belief in the return of christ this trust in the return of jesus is a very fundamental doctrine of the faith but like anything These Thessalonian Christians, they had some questions. They had some things they didn't understand fully that were involved with the return, the second coming of Christ. Let me ask you, do you have any questions about the return of Jesus? Sure. I've been studying the Bible intently for the better part of 40 years. I've still got questions about the return of Christ. And I hope some of those questions we have together will be answered in the text we'll be studying today. I'm going to read up front the whole paragraph, verses 13 through 18, so that we can have the context, but we'll be focusing in particularly on verses 16 through 18 today. Look in your Bibles at verse 13 of First Thessalonians chapter 4. This is God's word. Hear it. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And I pray this will be encouraging to us today. Now as we come back to this passage, this is a passage, as I've stated before, that is perhaps the most descriptive and most succinct in all the Bible regarding these things, regarding the return of Christ, regarding the the coming of Jesus, regarding the rapture of those who are alive. And as such, I gave this to you last week. This is an interpretive principle for us as we look at this passage. Look at this next slide. We need to Keep the plain things the main things. Keep the plain things the main things. Let's not get bogged down in the minutia and details which are not clear from the text. But those things which are straightforward, those things which are obvious, they are meant for our encouragement. They're meant to engender faith and hope in us uh, as we have an expectant hope For these things to take place. And from the passage that we've just read, I want to point out five things in particular that give for us expect and hope. Here's the first one. It's really a review from last week, The Return of the King. That was the title of my sermon last week, The Return of the King. If you missed it, the audio and the video is available on our website. You can go check it out. There will be a return of the king. I just want to review this reality for a moment that Christ is coming back. And when the king returns, he's coming to establish forever and always his rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. He's setting up his kingdom completely and finally. And one of the things we looked at last week is in this passage and in parallel passages, the return of Jesus is coming with a dramatic clarity. It's coming with a dramatic clarity. He's not coming to these clandestine organizations meeting in some secret society and secret rooms. He's not coming just to the wilderness out in the middle of nowhere where nobody's going to know about it. It's going to be obvious. It's going to be public. It's going to be clear Christ has come back. And there are going to be associated with his return these dramatic sights and dramatic sounds. Now, last week we considered these truths, and I just want to again review them for a moment. When Christ comes back, it will be visible. There will be visible things. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we know the book of Revelation, if you've read it before. It's not Revelations, by the way, it's Revelation. If you've read the book of Revelation, you know it's somewhat cryptic, enigmatic, and and mysterious as it presents metaphorically many of these ideas and concepts. But at the very beginning, it's not enigmatic at all. It's not cryptic. In fact, notice what the Apostle John says about the coming of Christ In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. When Christ comes, it will be visible. And I want you to think about particularly the context of the book of Revelation as the Apostle John wrote it near the end of his life. He was Exiled as a combatant, if you will, of the Roman Empire to the Isle of Patmos, there on a penal colony. And he's riding to beleaguered and weary Christians who have been under hostile oppression and severe persecution. And he's riding these things to engender in them expect and hope. Friends, things are not always going to be this way. It's not always going to be like this, as they are viciously oppressed by the opposers of the gospel. He says, listen, we can be more than conquerors. We can be confident. We can be encouraged. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. But in the focal text, not only are there sights, but there's also sounds. And Paul mentions to the Thessalonians particular sounds associated with the return of the king. There will be the cry of command. There will be the voice of, of the archangel, and there will be the trumpet of God. It's going to be spectacular, and it's going to be unmistakable as these deafening sounds reverberate across the planet. You may have noticed, as I have, that in our particular community, there's been an issue recently with some of our neighbors who have been setting off fireworks at night on weeknights as people are trying to sleep and get a night's sleep. And so the cops have been called, and 911's been called because people are getting awakened in the middle of the night before going to work the next day. I believe on that day, 911 operators are going to be overwhelmed. (laughs) Fireworks may awaken the sleeping on a work night. These sounds will awaken the dead. They will bring back to life those who are spiritually and physically asleep, dead. This is the truth of the return of the king. But that leads to the second thing I want us to see in this passage. Number two, Paul points out the resurrection of the dead. He says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, here's the deal. These Thessalonians, Thessalonica was in northern Greece. In their Greek mindset, in their culture, their frame of reference had nothing to do or no understanding or experience or conversation about people coming out of graves. This would have been totally foreign to their mindset. And here is Paul coming, and he's talking to them about people coming up out of tombs. In fact, I've told you before, Acts 17, which is the history book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, Acts 17 records the actual event when Paul, on his missionary journey, comes into the city of Thessalonica and and establishes this church. When he leaves Thessalonica, he goes down to southern Greece to the city of Athens, Greece. And there he is on what's called Mars Hill where all of the intellectual elite and all the philosophers would come together and they would debate and discuss philosophy. And there's Paul and he begins to speak to them. And he begins to talk to them about the resurrection from the dead. And you remember what they said to him? They didn't say, oh, the resurrection of the dead. That sounds pretty plausible. No, here's what they said. Who is this babbler? (laughs) In other words, you're an idiot, Paul. Who in the world has any thought of people coming up out of graves. So, so the Greek mindset really saw the afterlife as very shadowy, as vague, as if there is an afterlife, if you exist from this life. Well, they referred to it as, quote, shades of the netherworld. This is what they saw as being after this life. And Paul comes along and he says it's understandable that these new believers in Greece, and Thessalonica, are wrestling with The implications of the return of Christ. What are you talking about? Because these concepts are totally outside their former background and their frame of reference. Now, remember, I mentioned last week that when Paul said in verse 15, This we declare to you as a word from the Lord, I believe this word from the Lord is literally what Jesus had to say. So, did Jesus have anything to say about people coming up out of tombs? Did Jesus say anything in his teaching on the planet about graves opening up? Well, as a matter of fact, he did. In fact, he did in, in John chapter 5. Notice John five twenty-five. Jesus speaking says, truly, truly. In other words, you can go to the bank with it. I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, you may be thinking, well, surely he's speaking metaphorically here. He's talking about the spiritually dead will hear the son of God call them and they'll come from spiritual death to spiritual life. No, he explains. Look at verse 28. He says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is coming with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead will hear his voice and come out of those tombs. Now, last week I talked a little bit about the suddenness of this return and how it's going to impact people who are going along with everyday normal life. And I mentioned last week how I've thought often, and I've performed tons of weddings how a wedding is a metaphor for the return of Christ and the grooms coming to meet the bride. And what if if Christ returned right there before the bride even got to the altar? Well, you know what I've done more than weddings? Funerals. There's been many times I've been doing a funeral as I'm preaching on the blessed hope of the resurrection from the dead when I've thought as I'm driving my vehicle behind the hearse going to the cemetery, what if it were right now? (laughs) Would that be amazing? Or I've thought, as those nervous pallbearers are taking that casket out of the hearse and walking from the hearse up the the grassy knoll to the plot, what if Christ returned somewhere between here and there? I have no doubt in my mind that there's going to be some preacher at some cemetery preaching a funeral for some believer, and Christ is going to come back. And that casket that's hanging over that grave is never going to be lowered because he's going to be resurrected from the dead as well as hundreds in that cemetery. Is that bizarre to think about? But friends, this is what we believe. This is what we must believe, because Christ said it is so, that there is going to be this return. Now, this specific instruction that Paul gives that would have directly answered some of these Thessalonians' questions. What about those who have fallen asleep? What about those who have died? Are they going to miss out on eternity with Jesus? And Paul says, no, 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 no. They're not going to miss out on eternity with Jesus. In fact, they're going to rise first. I mentioned it last week. It's priority boarding. They get to this flight before we who are alive. And what does this mean? It means, friends, we don't grieve like the world grieves. We grieve, yes. We are sorrowful. We have a funeral this week. We are sorrowful at the loss of a family member, of a friend, of a church member. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. You see, no matter what the headlines say, we can hope in Jesus. This is why in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pandemics, in the midst of political upheaval, no matter what the headlines say, there's going to be a headline one day that eclipses all of their headlines and that is the resurrection of the dead to eternal life. In fact, notice how the Bible puts it in Romans chapter 6. It says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so with our limited understanding, even with a sanctified imagination, we can't possibly conceive of the magnitude globally this event is going to bring with it. It will be unlike anything the world has ever seen. So, this gives us hope. There is the return of the king. There's the resurrection of the dead. But that leads thirdly to this next point, the rapture of the living. The rapture of the living. Verse 17 begins, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. You might want to circle those two words on your outline, caught up. Now, where do we get this word rapture from? If you've been around church at all, particularly in evangelical vernacular and parlance, this word rapture is used quite a bit, even though the word's nowhere in the Bible. So is it true? Is it actually going to happen, this rapture? Well, the word rapture is from a Latin word and it really comes from the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament. Raptus is the word in Latin. That's where we get our English word rapture. Now, what raptus in Latin means literally is to seize upon. It means to, to carry off, to snatch away. And sometimes it even is used for kidnapping, <laughs> to rapture, to raptus. Now, the Greek word that's translated in Latin, raptus, or translated in our English here, caught up is the Greek word harpazo. You don't need to know what that word means or anything about it, but just to know, it essentially means the same thing. To snatch, to seize up, to carry away. Now, let me show you a couple of instances where this word is also used in the New Testament so we can get kind of a concept of what Paul's talking about here. It's used of Jesus when he's giving the explanation of the parable of the soils. He says this, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. You see the force of that event. It's also used in John 10, 28, when Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out, harpazo, of my hand. This is the same word that Paul uses here. It's a snatching, it's a seizing, it's a carrying off with great force. And so we anticipate that with the shout of command, there will be a resurrection of the dead. But friends, there will also be a snatching away, a seizing, a kidnapping, if you will, of we who are alive and remain. Now let me give you a word about this of both caution and a word of encouragement with regard to the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, what we're studying right now. It is the clearest and most definitive description of the rapture in the entirety of the Bible. This one verse is the only verse that speaks unambiguously about the harpazo, about the snatching away, about the being caught up. This is it. Now, there are other places in the Bible which give inference to it. There are other places in the Bible that seem to be alluding to it, but not another verse that is so clear and so succinct and unambiguously says we're going to be snatched up if we're alive when Christ returns. So what that means is this, friends. Um, If we have such limited information about the rapture in the one solitary verse that clearly defines the rapture, we ought to be very careful about becoming unduly dogmatic about our pet theories regarding the rapture. What do I mean by that? Well, particularly, does First Thessalonians 4.17, the solitary verse that talks about the snatching away of those who are alive when Christ returns, does it say anything about the timing of it with regard to the tribulation? No. Does First Thessalonians 4.17, or the context here in this paragraph, does it say anything about the timing of the rapture with regard to the millennial kingdom? Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, panmillennial. I think it's all going to pan out at the end, right? Does it say anything? No, it doesn't. So again, we should not become unduly dogmatic about those things because they can't be conclusively drawn from it. Now, we can have our inferences. I've got my opinions. We can develop our theories. We can put together our charts and our graphs and our timelines, but they can't be established conclusively from this verse alone. What that means is this. Listen, we should not elevate to first importance these minutiae about the rapture when it can't be conclusively drawn from the one verse that talks about the rapture. So let me explain it like this. Often, some of you will come to me and say, hey, I've got a family member and they, they live down here and they're going to this church. You know anything about this church? Or somebody says, hey, I'm thinking about getting, being a part of this ministry, this parachurch ministry. So what do I do? Well, I go immediately to their website and I try to find their doctrinal statement. It's amazing how many churches have their doctrinal statement hidden way back in the recesses of the interwebs of their website and I'll go and read them and I'm what am I looking for I'm looking for do they hold to the fundamentals of the faith do they hold to the virgin birth do they hold to the authority of scripture do they hold to the 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 sinlessness of Christ they hold to his personal death on the cross and his bodily resurrection it's interesting how sometimes some of these ministries or churches they put on their fundamental doctrinal statement these nuances and ambiguities about the rapture that, friends, are not of first-level importance. They're not. So we have to be clear. Now, again, I mentioned at the introduction of my sermon, a fundamental doctrine of the church is the return of Christ. That's fundamental. He's coming back. And here's really what's interesting. You don't see this kind of dividing line between Christians before 20th century American Christianity. This is a new phenomenon in church history and it's particularly isolated to North America. In the Reformation, where the gospel was marvelously recovered, they're not arguing over these minutia. When the Baptists began to be formed in England and even in North America, they're not arguing over these minutia. You can't find these details in their original doctrinal statements. And here's what I also find interesting. Those who have such tightly knit Doctrinal statements about these things, they all seem to almost universally come under the banner of Baptist. So I can poke at them because I'm a Baptist, right? It's, it's bizarre. In fact, I, I want to show you this familiar phrase. Out of came out of the Reformation. I think it applies here. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. These minutiae are not to be dividing lines of fellowship between Christians. Yes, we have our opinions, but is Christ returning? Yes. Is he going to resurrect the dead? Yes. Will he snatch away, seize those who are alive and remain? Yes. And in these truths, all Christians can heartily rejoice. This is our expectant hope. So we see, at the return of the king, there will be a resurrection of the dead. At the return of the king, there will be a rapture of the living. Here's the next thing. At the return of the king, there will be a reunion in the air. Hallelujah. 17 continues, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, harpazo, snatched together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We'll always be with with the Lord. What a comforting and powerful truth that after this moment, we will be in the personal, literal presence of Jesus forever. (laughs) That's the reunion in the air. Now, if you read this, you may have asked the question, as I did, what is the third person personal pronoun them? Who's that referring to? We shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Well, I have no doubt. It includes Jesus. Obviously, he's the one coming in the clouds. But it also includes these believers whose souls have been united with their resurrected bodies at the resurrection. So this is the reunion in the clouds. Now, I think at this point, it would be helpful to interject a a bit of theology right here. I pulled out my big volume, Grudem's Systematic Theology this week to do a little reading and brush up on this area. I want to just talk about briefly, just so we have understanding, the three types or positions of existence for Christians in life. There are some who falsely teach that when someone dies, a believer dies, they enter into what's known as soul sleep. There are some who teach today that when you die, if you're a believer, you consciously are unaware. You're in something of a spiritual coma from the moment of your death until the resurrection when Christ returns. You're just unconscious, unaware. Unfortunately, that does not comport with Scripture. Now, they draw that from passages like this where Paul uses the metaphor of sleeping for death, but he's not talking about literally being in a spiritual coma. For instance, how do we know this doesn't comport with Scripture? Let me show you a few examples. When Jesus had his conversation with the thief on the cross, the thief said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not in some soul sleep, consciously aware and in his presence. In Philippians 1, Paul gives this instruction. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means right here like we are, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. So being with Christ is not unconscious spiritual coma. But perhaps the most extensive instruction on this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You may even want to turn your Bible there. Uh, we're going to camp out here for just a minute. The scripture's going to be on the screen as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to read the, the entire passage and then give some explanation to what we read. The Bible says this, For we know Paul outlines three states of existence for the believer in Jesus Christ. And I want to review them for you real quickly. First of all, there's the earthly state. The earthly state. The earthly state is this. We have a redeemed soul that has been born again by the power of God dwelling in a fallen human body. Now, there's several phrases here that refer to this first state, the earthly state, in the passage we just read. He said we have this tent Tent That is our earthly home. In this tent, we groan. We are still in this tent. We are at home in the body. We are away from the Lord. So this includes all Christians in the room today. If you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have understood your lostness and your guilt before a holy God and you've trusted in the penal substitution, the penalty payment of Jesus alone for your salvation, you've been born again by the power of God. You're in the earthly state. You have a redeemed body and a fall excuse me, you have a redeemed soul and a fallen body. But if you die before the resurrection, before the return of Christ, you will enter into what is known as the second one, the intermediate state. The intermediate state. What is the intermediate state of existence? It's a bodiless redeemed soul in the spiritual conscious presence of Christ. A bodiless soul. And here's some phrases from what we just read that describe the second intermediate state. Found naked. Doesn't have a body. We would be unclothed. Away from the body and at home with the Lord. And you've probably heard that phrase even used at a funeral. We know that he's away from his body and it's home with the Lord. Yes, he is. Yes, she is. In the intermediate state. A bodiless soul. So the thief on the cross... He's in the intermediate state. My mom, who died 10 years ago, she's with the thief on the cross in the presence of Jesus' bodiless soul. But that's not their eternal condition. There's this third state, and it's the eternal state, and that is when we will have a resurrected new body joined with our souls in the physical presence of Christ. That's the eternal state. Look again at some of the phrases from 2 Corinthians 5. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We have a heavenly dwelling. We would be further clothed. You see, our eternal existence is not going to just be spiritual. Our eternal existence is not that we're just kind of ghosts floating around. You know, that's not what we're going to be like. Our eternal final state as Christians will be physical. We will have new bodies. We will eat food. We will walk streets of gold. Jesus will have a body which I'm going to embrace. We will be physical eternally. Not just these spirits floating around without bodies. That's the promise of the word. And here's the thing. This is a building from God, Paul says. These are bodies that they're designed for eternity. What does that mean? They don't get tired. They don't wear out. They're not susceptible to pandemics. They don't break hips when you fall down. You probably don't even fall down. They're eternal in the heavens, fit for eternity, never wearing out. What hope! Even as we pray for our brothers and sisters who over the last 10 weeks have dealt with these issues of bodies wearing out, this is a, such a hope and anticipation for us. And here's the reality of all three of these states. Whether the earthly state, the intermediate state, or the eternal state. Here's the promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. We're in these fallen bodies now, but Jesus said, don't worry, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm dwelling within you through my spirit. I'll never leave you or forsake you. In the intermediate state where we just have bodiless souls, we're in the presence of Christ, enjoying communion with him. And then after the resurrection, the eternal state And so we shall always be with the Lord. And this reunion that happens in the clouds for those who have been in their intermediate state, whether for two days, two minutes, or two millennia, they will now have their resurrection eternal bodies. And you may say, well, okay, so the dead get their new bodies when they're resurrected. When do the living, if the rapture, if I'm alive and the rapture happens of me, what about me when do I get my new body? Well, right then. We looked at this passage last week, but it bears repeating. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. So we don't know all the things about it, but it is a mystery. But we do know this, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all, all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Every believer in Jesus Christ, whether buried and dead, whether decomposing in the ground, or whether living when Christ returns, they will get a new body. They will shed this temporary earth suit for a body that is equipped and fit forever. Now, the most important thing about this, about this reunion, is the end of verse 17. And so, we will always be with the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Would you be longing for heaven with all the things we're looking forward to in heaven? A new body, or, uh, no illness, no sickness. Longing to be re- reunited with loved ones. Is heaven heaven for you if Jesus is not there? If it is, got a problem. Heaven, with all of its glories, with all of its beauty, with the reunion of loved ones who have passed on, heaven is only heaven because Jesus is there. That's what we long for. That's what we look toward. We will always be with the Lord. But what about now? How are we to live in light of these unimaginable truths? That leads to the fifth and final thing that I want to conclude with, the responsibility for today. Verse, the paragraph concludes, verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. These words are words of encouragement. When someone is downhearted, tell them that Jesus is coming back. When someone's had a difficult day, remind them Christ is returning and all will be made new. When you're watching the news or reading the headlines and you're bemoaning our government, tell yourself Christ will establish Himself as King of the earth once and for all. Encourage one another with these truths. These truths give meaning to our existence. These truths give confidence for our faith, and these truths, listen, give us purpose for living. We're living toward that end, which is why the author of Hebrews said this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near these words paul says these truths as mysterious as they are they're meant for our encouragement as the day of return the day of resurrection the day of rapture the day of reunion is coming and we can be encouraged and that leads to my last thought our dependence on these promises informs our outlook in the present. Let's go to him in prayer.